Okay, awesome. Um, hi everyone, today I'm here with a wonderful human who I love to be with and spend time with, Dr. James Gordon. Welcome, Dr. Gordon. Hi, Pleasant. how are you? Nice to be here with you. It's almost like I'm here with you in present, in, 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 the, in the present moment, in fact, in, in reality, it's close. I know the video stuff is really fun because you can still see and connect in such almost, almost in real life, but not quite the same, not quite the same. Yes. And I invited you to come on and share with our community about the work that you do and at the Center for Mind Body Medicine and also about your new book, which you have there. Hold it up for uh, us. The new here. book is yep. right here called the Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. Wonderful. Would you actually read, I asked you to pick something out um, from the book to start us off, and then I'll have you share a little bit more about the center and the work you do. Sure, I'd be happy to. This is um, an early chapter in the book, and it's a chapter about using shaking and dancing. Uh, as a way to break up fixed patterns of physical and emotional stress that are, you know, there, you can feel it in your tense body, you can experience it in repetitive thoughts that won't go away. So this is a, a very simple, expressive meditation that I teach uh, early on in the transformation and that we teach in our workshops and our training programs and in my work with individuals. And it's very practical and very easy for people to use. And, and I'm just going to begin with this chapter where I introduce the use of shaking and dancing in, um, in Macedonia, actually, during the war in Kosovo. So here goes. Uh, on a cold, damp morning in March 1999, while U.S. bombers roar overhead and U.N. trucks groan through an endless rows of tents in Macedonia's Stankovic refugee camp, I lead a workshop for 200 Kosovo Albanians who have fled Serbian ethnic cleansing. I begin as I usually do with soft belly breathing. Afterwards, I ask for a show of hands and soft belly breathing is just breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth with your belly soft and relaxed. It balances the fight or flight response and restores physical and to some degree psychological equilibrium as well. Uh, afterward, I ask for a show of hands. How many of you, my interpreter queries, translating my English into Albanian, notice any change? Here as elsewhere, after war is over or even in the middle of fighting, about 70 or 80% of the hands go up. What happened, I say, and answers are shattered out, calmer, relaxed, my body's less tense, fewer bad thoughts, a little less cold. There are some laughs at this. I explain the fight-or-flight response, asking my audience to tell me if they've experienced it and what it's like. There's no problem getting the answers. Their hearts have been racing. Just about everybody is having trouble sleeping. Older people's blood pressure is off the charts. The close quarters of cold, small tents are filled with irritation. Ordinarily, patient mothers are smacking unruly children. Does anyone, I go on, have any questions about fight or flight or this soft belly meditation or any concerns you'd like to share? Far away toward the back of the huge tent, 
A man with a pale round face stands and raises his hand. Doctor, he says, thank you so much for coming to help us. Three months ago, I saw 21 members of our family massacred by Serbian paramilitaries. I cannot get the picture out of my mind. It is always there when I'm awake, the children falling and bleeding, my wife trying to cover the bodies, and it is there in my dreams. It was still there while we were doing the breathing. What can I do to make it leave my mind? My own mind stops. My beating heart seems to overwhelm my voice. Finally, I tell him that I'm so sad and moved by what he has told me and honored that he would share his pain with me. I do not know what I can do to help, I say, but I do hope that you will stay with us in this workshop. Thank you, doctor, he says and sits. I speak haltingly at first, my eyes filled with the face of this questioner whom I think of as the man of sorrow with his unimaginable suffering. I pause and breathe slowly and deeply, this time to quiet my own shock and my sadness at not being able to help. When I'm calm enough to speak again, I begin. I know there are many of you whose minds are filled with terrible memories that won't go away, whose hearts are heavy with grief. I know that some of you feel weak and stiff in your body, unable to act or even feel. These are all effects of trauma. We're going to do something now that will shake loose the tension of your fight or flight and help melt your frozen body. It may help you get rid of some of your anger, raise your energy a little, maybe even lift off some of the troubles that weigh down your minds. What we're going to do, I continue, is technically called an expressive meditation. Expressive meditations are the oldest ones on our planet. All our ancestors did them. They shouted and danced and whirled and jumped up and down. When something terrible had happened or was about to happen, they moved their bodies and let go of their tensions and expressed their feelings. Are you willing to do this? I'm shouting now. Hands go up everywhere. I hope it's enthusiasm. Perhaps it's only that right now I'm a diversion in this tedious, troubled tent town of 70,000 refugees. In the first part, we'll shake for about six to eight minutes to fast music. Then we'll stop and stand still for a couple of minutes, relaxing, paying attention to being aware, mindful of our body and our breath. Then there will be new music. Just let your body move to it. I don't say dance, because then you'll have an idea in your head, waltz or salsa or electric slide, some laughs. Or you'll start worrying, I'm such a poor dancer. Or you'll start thinking how you're going to show off some new steps, many laughs here. It isn't about those dances or any particular dance. And it's not about skill. It's about doing your dance. Each of us is different. We all look a little different. We have different genes, different fingerprints, different faces, different minds, different preferences. So if there are 200 of us here, there will be 200 different dances. Now I'm going to show you how to shake, I say, climbing up on a truck, truck bed so they can see me from the back of the tent. Mm. Put your feet shoulder width apart, bend your knees a little bit, Relax your shoulders. 
And now begin shaking from your feet up through your knees and your hips so your whole body is shaking. I do it and see incredulous looks on weathered faces. A grown man, a doctor doing this? <laughs> meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, the team of doctors and therapists that I brought from the U.S. spreads out and shakes with me. Soon pretty much everyone is moving up and down, shaking, laughing. Great, I shout. You're very good. This is just practice. We'll start again soon. Relax for a minute. Now, this is an experiment I go on. And you may remember from science class that every experiment has conditions, things you have to organize so the experiment works the way it should. There's only one condition for this experiment. Close your eyes. That's so you don't peek at your neighbor and say to yourself, and I exaggerate here for comic effect, oh, I really need to teach that woman how to shake, or I could never be as good as him. Forget those other people for a while. Leave judgment and comparison outside our tent. This is just for you. Breathe deeply and slowly for a minute or two, I say. A few guys at the edge of the crowd shuffle around, puzzled and uncomfortable, but everyone else gets ready. Thank nature for this experience, as my teacher Sham used to tell me. Now begin. The music, fast, driving, rhythmic, electronic, fills the air underneath the huge tent. Shake up from your feet, through your knees, hips, and shoulders to your chest. Let the shaking take over. Let your shoulders go. Most of us have so much tension there. I'm crooning, coaching, coaxing. More and more people join in. Masses of men moving like jackhammers. Women in hijabs gathering together, bobbing up and down. Kids shaking arms and legs as if to bring down rain. Let your head go as you shake. Let your jaw hang open. Lots of us have tightness there. If sounds come out of your mouth, let them come. And now there are shouts, howls, a few high-pitched screams. If you feel silly or bored or tired, keep going. Let the shaking take over your whole body. Good, good, keep going. I'm shaking as hard as I can now, my head whipping side to side, laughing enjoying and encouraging my new partners. After about four minutes, just when everyone is ready to call it a day, I shout the remaining time. Three minutes left. Scattered <laughs> groans. <laughs> if you feel tired or bored, pick up the pace. Keep going. Keep going. Faster. Good. Good. Two minutes. I'm counting down now. Keep going. Great. One minute, 100% effort, 30 seconds, stop. The music stops and so do the shakers. Now be quiet, pay attention to your breathing. Relax, be aware of your body, of breathing. Our breath rises in steam toward the roof of the great tent. After two or three minutes of silence, I speak again, announcing, when the music begins, let it move you. A couple of dramatic chords surprise us, and then there's the voice of Jimmy Cliff, at once insistent and angry, upbeat and hopeful, urging us on. It's the reggae anthem. You can get it if you really want. Older people are shuffling in place. Younger ones kick their legs and flail their arms. 
Some can't resist opening their eyes and grabbing partners, mostly men with men and women in circles of women. Children are whirling. After a few minutes, the song is over. But some people continue to move by themselves and in the lines they've formed for traditional Albanian dances. There's lots of loud talk. Women laugh and men slap each other on the back. It looks like sleepers have come awake. Eyes are bright. The air is filled with appreciation and questions. Finally, I am relaxed. I can feel my body again. What time of day is best to do this? Can I teach it to my grandmother? Morning, I answer, or any time you are tense. And yes, it's fine for your grandmother. <laughs> Afterwards, some people hang around, wanting to tell each other or me more about what has happened. I listen and answer questions. As the crowd melts away, I see the man of sorrow sitting quietly apart. He signals to my interpreter, says he wants to take a picture with me. I sit next to him, our arms around each other's shoulder. I ask him why he wants the photo. For a few minutes, he says, after the shaking, during the dancing, those terrible images and thoughts were gone from my mind. It's the first time in three months. It gives me hope that I can live again. So, so that's why you do what you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, this is what we do. This is what I do. This is what we do yeah. here in the U.S., here in D.C., and around the world. So I was laughing when you were describing because I remember, so full disclosure, last year I had the pleasure and honor and privilege of attending um, two trainings with the center. And one of the highlights of my year was actually the, I taught yoga in the mornings before the sessions. And I would say yoga sort of in quotes because what I teach more now is just intuitive movement and breath and relaxation. So yoga is that container that we're talking about just in terms, but the, the people that you, your organization attracts for the trainings are the most heartful, incredible, brilliant, compassionate humans. So, and the training's five days. So every morning we would have this time together and I felt so, we, we really connected in both trainings and had this incredible time together to integrate and really work with the teachings and all the things that we we're learning during the day, which is a really beautiful uh, addition and complement to the work that you're doing. So I love that, again, holistic approach. I think one might think that that would be the norm in some of the trainings. And I'm here to say, I am always shocked when I go to a holistic health training and we're sitting and writing for hours and hours. And what we're learning is literally counter what we're doing. I mean, it blows my mind that some of these conferences and workshops would have no movement practice. But when we did shaking and dancing the first time, I stood there like, what is about to happen? Because there's so many, 
medical doctor. I mean, there's just, it, it just the vibe of it that first time. And I kept opening my eyes and to see if your staff was, I mean, this was what I was looking for. Are these people for real? Like, is he going to do it and all his staff going to do it? Are all the people in the room going to participate? Cause that's where you get that. And every time I would peek at Sabrina and Linda way and Kathy, everyone is just, you know, <laughs> dancing and move you. I mean, your eyes are closed. You are in it. And I was like, okay. I can be in it. I'm free. This is not bull. <laughs> and that felt so wonderful. And now that I've done it so much, and then you were just at our school last week promoting the book and working with our community who's been through some trauma. And I felt like one of the, um, like holding space and permission for other people to let loose because as we do that, as you do it and I do it and everybody in the room starts to do it, they feel more comfortable to use the practice and that is a gift. So mm -hmm. thank you, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome, it's my pleasure. And you know, one of the reasons that, that I like to do this work and one of the reasons our faculty, we have a faculty of 130 people, one of the reasons our faculty likes to do it is because we're working on ourselves. You know, we're here to teach yes. and to serve other people but at the same time, as you say, we're doing the techniques ourselves. We're also loosening up so we can be present, so we can be relaxed, so we have, you know, the energy and the openness to do the work we want to do. Yeah. Um, the other piece that I'm curious about with your, with the training program specifically that was so, I was so impressed by and so grateful for was the nod and acknowledgement of wisdom tradition and international culture um, community uh, for a lot of time. And what I notice a lot in modern wellness culture is um, not a recognition of it, just the science or just the research. So can you talk a little bit about how you created and were able to integrate more of that cultural uh, diversity and relevance and nod that's such a part of your program sure well you know for me it was everything that I and we now teach to other people these are all approaches and techniques that originally I was using on myself I was looking uh, although I'm you know Western trained physician with all the sort of fancy establishment credentials and I can see the benefits of Western medicine. I, I could also very clearly within pretty much, even while I was in medical school, I could see the limitations. I could see the limitations of understanding of psychiatric disorders, the narrowness of the pathological framework. Uh, I knew there were more um, sort of open-minded and comprehensive ways to understand people's experience. And I began to look at myself and look at some of the issues in my life. And uh, what I would discover is when something came up for me, if I had allergies, for example, I, I didn't want to be taking, uh, you know, medications which had side effects. So I started looking at some of these, you know, folk, folk remedies, remedies from, from other, either from Western European herbalism or from Native American herbalism, or after a while I got interested in Chinese herbs. And I just began to look, what, what can be best for me? I was in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis as a psychiatric resident, as a medical student and a psychiatric resident, and they were great. I learned a great deal. I got a great deal of, of help, but I also was starting to understand that there are states of consciousness 
and ways of understanding and dealing with my own difficulties that were outside of the realm of conventional psychotherapy and that they were present in those wisdom traditions. Mm -hmm. So I began to look at meditation, uh, initially meditation that came from India, both Buddhist and mm -hmm. uh, Tibetan, uh, Tibetan Buddhist and uh, also some of the Hindu practices. And I began to use those and um, I started looking at Chinese medicine. Uh, even in the 1960s, while I was still in medical school, I spent some time eating macrobiotic food. And I would eat regularly in a macrobiotic restaurant, first macrobiotic restaurant in the Western Hemisphere. And I felt good after I ate the food. I felt light. My mind was clear. And sometimes I'd rush out and have some strawberry shortcake right afterwards. And I could watch the change, what happened to my mind. So I said, this is really interesting. And macrobiotics, of course, is based on Chinese medicine. So I thought, well, and it has this whole other world view. So already in 1964-65, I was beginning to open my mind to the fact that other traditions that understood human beings and human functioning in different ways also had approaches and techniques to contribute that could be useful to me. And so over the years, I began to include these approaches in my own self-care and over time began to share them with my patients and investigate them when I was a researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health and ultimately put them together in the program that's become the training program mm -hmm. at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine and that's right there in the transformation in this mm -hmm. new book. It's all So it's all coming out of more than 50 years of personal experimentation yeah using the techniques with other people, and also understanding the science. I think, you know, we, uh, what you said is really interesting and, and, and important because the, for the first time on the planet now, we have an opportunity to learn from so many of these healing traditions and to put them together in appropriate ways with modern scientific medicine and to study them scientifically. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an extraordinary opportunity, and to get so narrow and so purely cognitive or so stuck in Western medicine is just short-sighted. And well, one of the things that happens in, that has happened in yoga culture specifically was, that I was seeing was a lot of 20- and 30-year-old women talking about following the moon cycle and saying things like, um, I just created this. And that hurt my heart because there's such a lineage to honor and to bring forth and wisdom from the ancestors, which we do in geneograms, which we do in, again, sort of in this deep dive work that is healthy um, for all of us to be connected to something bigger. So when I, I was coming into the training a little um, irritated, is a good word, with wellness culture because of what I was seeing. And I was really um, just kind of down about it, wondering why we weren't really talking about this, especially as I just myself am in Ayurvedic school. So a lot of Ayurvedic wisdom is just so much about lineage. So when I went to the, when I went to the training and I saw this really deep um, connection to a variety of traditions, I just, I, I really, I wept because I thought I feel at home here because this organization and this community is bringing forth the wisdom from which we can build and share, yes, the science, the spirit, the experience, 
which is really the integration we need right now, right? It's not one person creating one thing that's going to make a difference. And what's your, one of your taglines, heal, teach thousands to heal millions, something like that's that, it. right? I know. Yes. Yeah. So that's the thing. That's what I want to be part of and share is, you know, this community care, self-care really moving into community care. Um, and so I'd love to hear a little about how your own self-care has changed over this long, wonderful career that you've had. Do you have different practices now? You know, it's, um, I think it's, 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 it's continually changing and yeah. it's changing both according to what I learn, what I come across in my travels or what I come across in my reading, but also as I develop, and this is a really important part, as I develop my own intuition and I tune into what's right for me at a given moment. Mm -hmm. And it also depends on the people who appear in my life. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the early 1970s, I was, I was a researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health and I was working with runaway and homeless kids on the street here in Washington and in Prince George's County and working with their counselors and ultimately creating a national program. But at the same time, I was becoming interested in Chinese medicine. Mm -hmm. And um, curiously, uh, my goddaughter, who's your friend, Rosemary mm -hmm. Moraine, her mom had just been to China. Mm -hmm. And she gave me a subscription to the Peking Review. That's when they, Beijing used to be called Peking. And so I was living on a farm in the country, and uh, every month the Peking Review would arrive in my mailbox. And I, I read, I remember reading a study about the use of acupuncture to treat laminitis in oxen. Laminitis is inflammation of the hooves. And it was a, it was a well-done study. And it was uh, at a time when Western scientists were saying acupuncture is ridiculous, it's witchcraft. At best, it's just placebo. It's because yeah. people believe in it. <clears throat> and I read this study, and it showed that oxen who had inflammation in their hooves benefited significantly from acupuncture. And I thought, you know, I've seen an ox or two. This is not a placebo response. Mm -hmm. Oxen are not intend, uh, inclined to have belief systems. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was, became very interested in Chinese medicine. And one of the interesting things about my own journey of self-care is that I became, as I became interested in it, within a year or so, a friend of mine introduced me to a master of acupuncture and Chinese medicine. Happened to be an Indian man who'd spent years in China studying with the wandering monks. And his name was Sham Singha. And so Sham appeared in my life. And, and I think this is part of, sort of anybody thinking about self-care is to open yourself to whatever the possibilities that may seem appealing or promising. And from that time on in 1973 for 20 years, he was my major teacher and I learned acupuncture and he also taught me to cook according to principles of Chinese medicine, according to five elements and yin and yang and heaven earth, all these principles. Mm -hmm. And I, he, I used to cook with him. He would come here a couple of weeks out of the year and we'd cook meals for sometimes for four of us, sometimes for 200 people. And I, I learned how to cook. And I, so I learned to use food as my medicine through him. So it just, it just evolved. And at the same time, uh, I became interested in, in yoga. This is about around 1973, 74. 
And so I started doing yoga. I thought, well, this is interesting. This looks like it might be helpful. I'd, you know, I'd seen a few people doing yoga and they claimed that it was good for them. So it, it's a mat, been a matter of opening yeah. uh, to what seems most useful. And I continue, food is very much a part of my self-care. And I have no particular prejudice against any food, but I try to tune in to what's healthy for me and I try to eat mindfully. So when we teach about nutrition, we're not only teaching sort of the science of nutrition and which foods are better for you and which foods you should eat in smaller quantities or, or avoid, but also we're teaching mindful eating. Mm -hmm. So that became, and that still is very much a part of my self-care. I do some yoga stretching every morning. Uh, I do Tai Chi, not a great deal. There were times when I did a great deal more Tai Chi. Um, I do uh, I do, work, do a stationary bike. My knees yeah. are giving me problems. Yeah. So two best things for my knees, or three best things. One was losing weight, uh, which, which I did because it became clear that my knees would be very appreciative if I lost some weight. Uh, tai Chi and stationary bike. So I'm paying. I'm trying to pay attention to tune into what's going on with me. And now for me. Uh, as much as possible, every moment and every interaction is a part of my self-care. So the question is, can I relax mm -hmm. and be open to what's going on? This is so you're right now, you're you in this program, mm -hmm. you're my meditation teacher. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's a lot of what I'm focused on is I'm going around the country doing a lot of speaking mm -hmm. about the transformation and meeting lots of different people. And helping to organize the Center for Mind-Body Medicine Communities, I want to stay open to each person. So that's major self-care practice for me right now. And then also knowing when it's time to go to bed, too, when it's time to say, okay, yes. enough. Rest. You know, I'd love to stay up and hang out a little more, but maybe the time has come. Um, I really appreciate, in, again, in the trainings, the consideration and thoughtfulness and alignment with the food. Again, I, I go to a lot of conferences or I speak or a wellness workshop and then you go to eat and it's as if there was no communication beforehand. And one of the things I noticed was the food at the center and how it, uh, at the training and how it really nourished us. So thank you. Um, where did you, were you always super open-minded? I've heard you say that a few times. Were your parents very open-minded? Like, where did you get that from? Or is it just how you're made? Uh, I, I don't, I don't know that my parents were particularly open-minded. My, my father was curious, mm -hmm. and he was, and both my parents were intuitive. Mm. But, but open-minded is not a not a quality you would have attributed to them if you met them. Mm -hmm. My father was a surgeon. He was very dogmatic. He was always sure that he was right. <laughs> but on the other hand, he was interested in people, so that was there. Yeah. And my mother. Um, my mother was, my mother liked to charm people. So mm. She had that in her. And they, um, I think for me, it was, uh, I was just always a curious kid. I think most yeah. kids are open-minded. Yeah. And somehow in the middle of uh, my father's sort of very, you know, definitive views about everything and his insistence on telling me what to do all the time, somehow I, I preserved that childlike open-mindedness yeah. And then when I went to college, I left, I left home when I was 16 and mm -hmm. went to college. 
And I was like, a, I was a kid in a candy store. There were all these different things that were all these lectures and concerts yeah. and all these different people, you know, coming from places that I never even imagined. Yeah. So I was just, I just kind of enjoyed that ride. So that was there from the beginning. But um, I was also always, I suppose, a little, little bit odd. I was the kind of kid who liked to talk to, we would now call them homeless people. I didn't know quite what to call them. Yeah. But these disheveled people who would sit down next to me on a New York subway or on a park bench and say, hey, kid, you want to hear the secret of the universe? I said, sure. Of course I do. <laughs> I love so, that. And I, I, I hope I've kept that. I re- you know, somebody still says those things. And I said, oh, really? What, yeah. what are you thinking about? <laughs> How did they, your parents use their intuition? You said they were both very intuitive. Did they... Well, my, my father was a surgeon, and um, he was a superb diagnostician. Mm. He said he could differentiate appendicitis from right-sided diverticulitis uh, on the phone. That wow. it, by the way, somebody groaned about the pain in their wow. right side. He said he would come up with all these rational explanations for yeah. why, but... I thought to myself, no, <laughs> he's somehow tuning into what's going knows. on. Yeah. And my, my mother, my mother always knew what, when I was doing something that I shouldn't have been doing. <laughs> so it was a little daunting. <laughs> it, was, it was hard to tell her that I wasn't, you know, that the reason I was so eager to walk the dog for the fourth time was I wanted to see this girl who I had a crush on. <laughs> she would know. She knew why I was going out. So they, they both had this, yeah. each in their own way. I don't think either of them really appreciated it. And they did appreciate it some, but not as much as they could have. And so that was, you know, that I think it was something that I... I've learned to value in myself. I didn't know what, I, I wouldn't have known what to call it up until, yeah. you know, until I was well into my adulthood, just tuning in, paying attention. And I'm still sometimes surprised. I mean, I'm not, I, it's not like I'm a, you know, I know what's going on with everybody all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But, but when I, when I, I do know things mm-hmm. and I'm very surprised still, oh, yeah, I guess I'm right about that. Well, that's what I wanted to sort of move into is, is did that intuition and curiosity lead you to, de- to build the Center for Mind-Body Medicine? I mean, the books, the center, your trainings, you do mind, food, and mood, and food as medicine on the professional trainings. I mean, you have a lot going on in the organizational level. So do you use your intuition to guide the direction of the center? Absolutely. It's always yeah. been, yeah. it's always been what felt right to me at the time. Each move that we've made with the center, mm-hmm. now there are many, many people involved, but it still very much does this feel right mm-hmm. for whatever reasons. I, can, I mean, so I could, I could enumerate the reasons in each case. Yeah. For example, I'm just thinking now on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, some of our faculty, this is a place that I was not the first one to go to. Usually I'm the first one this one I wasn't, our faculty went for five or six years, four or five of them would go and volunteer and work with the kids and work with some of the teachers and uh, elders on the reservation. And I thought that was okay. And then all of a sudden, one year, there were 22 youth suicides. And I thought, and, and there was an invitation 
for us to come. And I thought, we have to be there. This is, uh, so it's an, it's an intuition that's based on response to a need mm-hmm. that I feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, in Haiti, uh, after the earthquake, people had asked me to go to Haiti several times before the earthquake. And I thought, oh my God, what are we going to do? I mean, you know, there's so poverty, so overwhelming, the effects of colonialism for all these centuries. I'm not quite sure what we can do. But the earthquake came and I said, of course we have to go. These are our brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. So it's that kind of thing. It's moving. There are events in the world that, that bring up things in me that say we have to, mm-hmm. to do, we have to act. And in, in the book, in the transformation, one of the crucial things for people who want to move through and beyond trauma and really discover their meaning and purpose in their lives and in many ways, the chaos of trauma, uh, which first has to be dealt with, can also open the door to greater meaning and purpose. And what brings us through that door and helps us know where to go is is our intuition and our imagination. So a lot of the techniques that I teach yeah. and that we teach in our trainings yeah. are about learning to listen, learning to tune in to intuition, to imagination. So turning towards the book, oh, when we're talking about trauma with a capital T um, and a little t, right? So for the book, is this really for people who have capital T, sexual abuse, addiction, or is this more little t every day? How do you define trauma and work with it right now in terms of all humans, or do they have to be in a crisis? This is T for for tout le monde. T for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of alliteration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, the, the point is that trauma is going to come to all of us yeah. sooner or later. Yeah, yeah. If it doesn't come early in life from neglect or abuse, and a very large number of us have been yes. neglected or abused in our early life. I mean, I wasn't, I can't say that I was, oh, I had some abuse early in my life, but I was certainly neglected. Um, and felt it. Uh, and if it doesn't come early in life from neglect or abuse or discrimination or poverty, uh, it may well come in our adult life as we deal with the crises of divorce or disappointment in a job or a child's illness or death of a parent. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't come then, it's certainly going to come toward the end of our life as we become frail and lose people we love and face our own death. So yes, there are some kinds of trauma that are have the capital T and that are much more overwhelming, like the man of sorrow I described, 21 family members killed, yeah. almost unimaginable. But, but the book is really written for everybody, and the method that, that I describe and the method that I yes. teach step by step works for both groups of people. Yeah. We've used it with people like the man of sorrow in many places both here in the U.S. and around the world. And it works for all of us who are dealing with the ordinary trauma of being a human being on this planet. And unfortunately, some of the added trauma that we inflict on ourselves through the kind of political climate, the social climate that we've created in our country, the, speaking of climate, the fears of climate change, the concerns about school shootings, the violence in our communities, so this is the kind of, we're living, 
we're actually swimming in a sea that's infested with trauma-causing events, as well as dealing with the trauma that comes from being a human being and having families and just dealing with crises of loss and disappointment. So yeah, the book is written for, uh, and that's why I wrote the book. The last book I wrote, last book I published was a book about depression. Mm-hmm. And people, a lot of people really loved the book and they said it's really valuable and helped me deal with depression. Other people said, well, yeah, the techniques are great, but why don't you write a book for all of us? Mm-hmm. Why not write a book for everyone? So I thought, and it took me a while to figure out exactly what that was going to be. And then it became clear to me that trauma is a way to the writing about trauma and giving people a, a plan for dealing with trauma was the way that I could write a book that could be useful to everyone. I like to just hone in on that because I think sometimes there's a comparison of trauma, meaning when something happens, someone says, well, so-and-so's blank died. So my feeling bad about, you know, my kid being mean to me today or something that seems seems smaller um you know in buddhism we talk a lot about suffering as being suffering and it's it's an experience and it's you can't really you know it's not something to compare but we do that very naturally and so i like to just have this conversation around like pain is pain and suffering is suffering it's part of being human and so soft belly breathing, shaking and dancing, um, doing the draw, doing some art and drawings, having sharing in a safe space. Like a lot of the techniques that are in the book and that you share at the center are great for daily life. Just as a way, you know, in Ayurveda, we talk about digesting emotions and digesting relationships. And I love, they just partner so well, because this is, these are the practical tools to do that. You know? Exactly. Yeah. So the, these are these are tools for everybody. Yes. Comparison is, yes. is a disease. Yeah. Um, and comparisons are very close to competition. Who's better? Yeah. Who's got more? Who's got less? And it works both ways. Yeah. Both saying my trauma is worse yeah. than yours, right. or right. Oh, uh, what uh, what's happened to me is insignificant. Right. Early on, when when I was in, in psychotherapy, when I was in medical school. I was sitting with my therapist, there was a man uh, still alive named Robert Coles, Bob Coles, and he was a psychiatrist, and much of his work then was helping the, helping the black kids who were integrating the schools in New Orleans, and they were having to go through these terrible, hateful mobs who wanted to kill them. And Bob had some pictures of these kids on his desk, mm-hmm. and one day I was feeling kind of sorry for myself, and he said, Bob, I don't know why you're wasting your time here with me. Those kids whom you're working with in New Orleans, they, their, their problems are, are so big and so important. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he raised an eyebrow and he said, oh, you have your problems too. <laughs> because it was like, okay, you're right. I mean, what's, what use does it do to compare yeah. myself? That, yes, nobody's trying to kill me yeah. now, but I'm doing myself some damage and I need help too. And I think this is, this is yeah. one of the, the, the essences of both the book and our work is have compassion for yourself. Yes. You're a human being. Yeah. You've got your issues. You've got yeah. what your concerns, your problems, your trauma. That's what you need to focus on. Yeah. If you want to help somebody who's more traumatized, fantastic. But don't neglect yourself. If you neglect yourself, don't take care of yourself. You're not going to be much use to anybody else either. 
And it just makes me think, reflecting back on some of the really most challenging times in my life when things seemed totally overwhelming and I was not in a good place, there was a lot of othering. I was doing that a lot. I was separating. I'm different then. I'm a victim. Like there was a lot of, I wasn't able to connect. And that sort of emotional and healing maturity that took after much more therapy and yoga and all these healing practices, now it's just brought more of that, again, community and like, oh, it's not just me. Oh, got it. But I can now see clearly that part of that mindset was also contributing to it being stagnant in the body and to feeling more congested with emotion and, and really being kind of an angry, mean person for a long time. Sure. You know, one of the things about the, the techniques and one of the reasons I teach them in the order that I teach them in the transformation is if we can begin to put ourselves in balance yeah. by slow, deep breathing, and balancing out the fight or flight response and techniques like shaking and dancing and breaking up fixed patterns, then on a biological level, it makes it easier to connect with other people. Yeah. then those parts of our brain that, that encourage compassion and connection are simply working better. So the, the bottom line is if we start taking better care of ourselves, we will be able to connect with other people, both to get support yeah. from them and to give support to them. Yeah. I think that's sometimes I get sad and journal about, I think it came up in some of the writing at the training too, that I did was that I had a lot of great therapists, but what I was doing was just coming in and yelling and screaming and walking out. And so there was just a mind to mind meeting all of the time. And so it, it, it wasn't um, super successful in terms of integration and embodiment and connection because I was just stuck in that same pattern, that traditional therapy in the 90s with those therapists we're doing the best they can there's no judgment it's just there there mm -hmm. wasn't more of a holistic approach so i'm yeah so and i think it's really important i hope that therapists who will read the book yes and that it will encourage them just the way yes. the people who come through yes. our training are yes. encouraged to open up to these other possibilities yes i think it's a huge piece okay so to close I would love for you to share any wisdom that you have with our community because you have lived through a lot. There have been a lot of different political changes and um, you've been all over the world and you've seen a lot and you've had a lot of experiences. And whenever I have someone who I respect their experience and the, the, amount that you've had, what wisdom do you have for us in this time of stress and distraction and overwhelm? What do you want us to know? Well, uh, that's a big question. You know, what keeps coming to my mind is a quote from Bob Dylan. Don't follow leaders, watch your parking meters. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's a kind of um, don't get too enamored with any, but any ideology, any ism. Really tune into what's going on with you and combine tuning into what's going on with you to taking care of business, taking care of the ordinary business of your life. The Sufis say, praise Allah, but tether your camel. And this is a time when we need to get in touch with that deepest spiritual part of ourselves that connects us to everyone else and to the whole universe, that that's crucial for our survival as a species. And at the same time, we have to take care of the ordinary business of living. Mm 
and not just get lost in some dream of perfection. So I think that that for me right now, that's the balance. How do I, how do I cultivate that, that spiritual part of myself or that just that fully human real part of myself uh, so that I stay in touch with what's actually important to me. And at the same time, go out into the world and do what I can in the world to take care of the ordinary business of my own practical life. And at the same time, share what I'm learning with other people. Mm. And I would, I would encourage everybody else to do that as well. This is not a matter of trying to convince people that you're right, and they're wrong. It's a matter of being fully yourself and sharing that self with other people. Thank you so much. Thank you. Where can people find the book and learn more about the programs that are coming up? Here's the book. Yeah. Book is the Transformation: Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. People can learn more uh, by looking at our website, cnbm.org. Some of the techniques are described and demonstrated there. Uh, information about the trainings that we're doing. And uh, the communities, one of the things that we're doing increasingly is working with communities all over the United States and around the world to bring this model of self-care, group support, and community building into the communities. Mm -hmm. So cmbm.org, and I'm, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, James Gordon, MD. So check us out, check me out, and be in touch. We're building... This is uh, pleasant. You're inviting your viewers, your listeners <clears throat> to join the healing community. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I thank you so much for all of the work that you've brought to the world, the community, the amazing people who are now mentors and leaders in my personal life. And I just, I just so honor all the work that you do and have done. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. See you soon.